Criminal Law, an update. This is Wheel Life. Legal Reflections on Vulnerable Road Users. The podcast where two experienced lawyers, who also happen to be enthusiastic cyclists, chat their way through topics concerning cyclists and other vulnerable road users from a legal and insurance perspective. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wheel Life. I'm Emily Formby of 39 Essex Chambers. And I'm Caroline Hall of DAC Beechcroft. Nice to see you, Caroline. Today we're catching up on criminal charges and particularly in relation to cyclists and other road users. If you remember, we did an episode on this way back in February 2021, but we thought it would be good to have an update on what has changed since then. (laughs) On the one hand, as with so much else, not a huge amount has happened. But to help us, we are absolutely delighted to have a guest with us who's a colleague of yours, Caroline. So I'll hand you over to introduce. Yeah, as you said, you and I spoke last February and went over differing criminal charges that a cyclist or, in fact, an e-scooter rider in the future may come across. But this time around, we are welcoming Ash Sharma, who is my colleague. He's a partner in our Birmingham office, and he's also head of our criminal motor defence team. So welcome to the podcast, Ash. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for inviting me. It's very kind of you. Lovely to have you, Ash. We always enjoy having a uh, guest to tell us bits and bobs and about what's going on. And one of the things that we're particularly interested in hearing about and talking to you about is the Road Traffic Offences Cycling Bill that's in the House of Lords, uh, the bill to try and amend the Road Traffic Act of 1988 and the Road Traffic Offenders Act of 1988 to create criminal offences particularly relating to cycling and careless and inconsiderate cycling. Because when we talked last time, we were talking about the lack of kind of teeth in criminal law and the resorting to such um, old-fashioned charges as wanton and furious cycling and this uh, bill being an attempt to try and sort of bring things up to date. And it'd be great to hear about that from you. Sure, of course. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if that bill has died a death because since we last spoke, it's had its first reading in the House of Lords on the 1st of December 2021 and then nothing has happened since. Although, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, with the political year we've had and everything else happening, that doesn't necessarily mean something isn't going to resurrect itself. The last time that this was in the press wasn't that long ago was when Grant Shapps decided that he would raise his head above the parapet before leaving office as Transport Minister to start talking talking about punishing cyclists. And at that point, he mentioned the transport bill, which seems it's going to be a catch-all bill that's going to include everything from e-scooters to vehicle um, autonomous vehicles to apparently potential change of the criminal law for cyclists. And within that, he mentioned causing death by dangerous cycling that would see bike riders found guilty of the offence face the same punishment as drivers convicted of causing death by dangerous. So it's almost putting them in the same league and dealing with it at the transport stage. I don't know if you've heard anything further about that either of you. No, I haven't. I suspect, as you say, that there are kind of larger and more important political things going on in the world at the moment. And so that's very much being put on the back burner. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, I was going to talk later on about the new offence of causing serious injury by careless driving. That had been on the books for a long, long time before it came to fruition. And I suspect that the new cycling offence will be very much the same. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the sort of ambition when uh, Baroness Mackintosh was uh, sponsoring the bill in the House of Lords, as you say, back at the end of 2021, was to create something very much tailored for 
cycling and very much tailored to that particular concern at the time. And I don't know whether it's just everything's become so much larger and, and taken so much longer or whether now that that's the particular case with the wanted and furious cycling is out of the press, it somehow seems less important. But it certainly does, the focus seems to be slightly away from the specifics of cycling. I wonder also if, because there's still not yet a decision about what's going to happen to e-scooters and to make them legal or not, and obviously the mooting of creating a separate category of vehicle to cover e-scooters and other electric micro-mobilities, whether there's a feeling that one should hold off creating a criminal offence before you've even created the category in which the vehicle is going to lie. Yeah, well, it goes back to what we spoke about last time in that the road traffic offences deal with mechanically propelled vehicles. And what we're talking about on these podcasts are cyclists and e-scooters. And the whole e-scooter, as you were just saying, of their own category is that they won't be mechanically propelled. So it is looking at how do we get an offence moving forward. I know you just mentioned about the wanton and furious cycling, and that was the main case we spoke about last time was the relatively well-known one, which is with regard to Charlie Alliston and um, the pedestrian that he hit. And that's the one that keeps getting uh, mentioned. However, in the last year, when we last spoke, we talked about a Peter McCrombie who'd been hit by a cyclist and died eight years later. That cyclist, Emil Loka, has now gone to trial and he was found to be, he was an Albanian who's living in the country illegally and he was given in the maximum sentence after being convicted of causing bodily harm by wanton and furious driving. Um, which is a sentence of two years. He was acquitted of manslaughter, and we spoke last time about the difficulty in arguing manslaughter in these situations. In that case, he gave himself up after 25 days after the crash, after a public appeal. And it was found um, when they looked at the CCTV footage that he had eight seconds in which he could have stopped for the traffic lights, which had changed to green, because he hit Peter McCrombie when he was going through a red traffic light. Subsequent to that, there's been another prosecution, which was um, involving 79-year-old Elizabeth Stone. She was walking in Monmouth when she was hit by a Stuart McGinn, who was 29, who came around a corner on a pavement and struck her. She again suffered serious injuries and she died four days later. He didn't stop and he rode away. He pleaded guilty to wanton or furious driving at Cardiff County Court and he was jailed for 12 months. Again, he was, as I just mentioned, he left the scene, but um, gave himself in to police 10 days after the police appeal. So there seems to be a pattern in terms of cyclists. If they do hit pedestrians, it seems to be fleeing the scene and then handing themselves into police down the line. Both of those cases, they were found guilty and they both received custodial sentences. There was one example this year in September, um, not that long ago, I think it was two weeks ago, a Cornelius de Bruin, who was found not guilty of causing bodily harm by wanton or reckless driving. And he had crashed into an Ian Gunn on Wilmslow Road, very similar to the other two injuries to the pedestrians. He deteriorated um, following a head injury and he died eight days later. After a three-day trial, Cornelius de Bruin was found not guilty the prosecution had alleged that he was cycling at 23 miles per hour, which was too fast. And they showed footage of him from various CCTV cameras showing that beforehand he'd gone through red traffic lights, although not at the time of the accident. He did remain at the scene. He assisted the police throughout. And that was a different outcome. As I said, he had a successful defence. So it just shows the different cases that you have in terms of when this charge is brought against people. In the main, it seems to be a one to two year custodial sentence. But there are those that are 
charged and are found not guilty. I think it's interesting, though, um, as you say, with the Amir Loka case, and, and he said he ran off because he was worried, as you said, he was an illegal entrant Albanian. He was worried about the immigration consequences, not trying to run away from the accident. Um, but he was also charged with manslaughter and was acquitted of that, despite going through a red light, despite having hit the cyclist. And, and I wonder if that is reflective, and Ash, I'd be interested in, in your view, of if that's reflective of an idea that even though the consequences, obviously, in these cases, tragically, the death of the pedestrian, and even though there is clear fault, not only by not looking properly because the bike hits the pedestrian, but more than that, in that they've gone through a red light, and, and that was certainly what happened in the local case. So deliberate wrongdoing, it's still perceived as a lesser crime or a lesser offence than a manslaughter, which equivalates to so many other stabbings or attacks or crimes of, of that nature. What do you think in that respect, Ash? I guess it's that association between the unlawful act and the death, the committing of the unlawful acts and the death that follows thereafter. I mean, I suspect if you were on a jury, there must be a degree of reluctance, and I'm not here to argue the rights or wrongs of this, but there must be a reluctance on the jury's part potentially to say, well, did the unlawful act, i.e. going through a red light or, or cycling on the pavement, was that directly caused of the individual's death? And I don't know. It's a difficult one, and, and I think it, it's something... I would potentially struggle with if I was sitting on a jury, and I suspect that, that most people would as well. What's interesting is that the extent to which laws reflect social views and social change, or social change comes about by the law, with obviously, as we touched on at the beginning, one of Grant Shapps' swan song statements um, was that cycling was going to go into the transport bill. But nonetheless, the drive was for dangerous cycling and bike riders found guilty of the offence of dangerous cycling to face the same punishment as drivers, as car drivers, causing death by dangerous. So obviously that carries a maximum life imprisonment. And I just wonder if, just as you say, that's that sort of psychological sort of feeling of a slight difference between the actions of the cyclist, whether cycling just doesn't somehow inherently seem as bad or dangerous as driving a vehicle, driving your car when you're kind of inside and protected and, you know, whether it sort of sets vulnerable road users against vulnerable road users. I, I don't know what the feeling is. I think there must be a perception of that. But I mean, it's also interesting that the number of kind of fatal cycling offences that, that occur every year are, are very, very small. That's not a reason not to introduce legislation. But yeah, I suspect it's not something that it's the forefront of people's minds in as much as people don't think of bicycles as potentially, you know, causing lethal or, or, or very serious injury. And the, the legislation that's been referred to and that people who prosecuted under it is, is very archaic. And I think it relates to horse-drawn carriages. I think that's where it stemmed from all those years ago. Yeah, yeah, the 1800s. That's right. So I think there's a good reason to bring it about, but perhaps we'll touch upon this later. And I think it'd be very interesting to see how juries apply the new law when it, when it does come in. Yeah, and of course, I suppose the reflection may be partly from juries and whether they're prepared to convict or partly also through sentencing because having a maximum life imprisonment as a maximum doesn't mean it's a required sentence. So presumably there'll be sentencing guidelines to assist when it comes to the new offence. But I wonder if that might also be a way of reflecting that distinction. But we also know, and, and Caroline and I touched on it in our first episode of this series, and, and it's something we might 
return to more precisely later was that one of the things, you know, with Grant Chaps talking about the red lights and selfish cyclists and that whole speech and saying everyone needs insurance and number plates, was it led to quite a considerable, well, a sort of bit of a newspaper campaign and quite a sort of considerable backlash against cyclists by other car drivers and sort of unleashing a kind of hostility towards cyclists, which isn't either necessary or necessarily there at the moment. And I just wondered what you thought about that. I think that's a really, really interesting point because this is something I was thinking about yesterday because when we have a trial, when we present our case to a jury, and I deal with driving offences and motorists being prosecuted for causing death by careless driving, causing death by dangerous driving. And I have to say a, a number of my cases involve drivers involved in fatal road traffic collisions with, with cyclists. One of the things that we always say to the jury is that Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the defendant is being judged against the standard of a careful and competent driver. Bring your own experiences, ladies and gentlemen. Bring your own, you're all motorists on the jury. Bring your own experience to the situation. Would you have done anything differently? So that's exactly what you're asking a jury to do. Bring their own experiences to a situation. And I think part of the issue, that's part of the problem potentially, is that most of us are motorists. I'm not a cyclist. I'll be candid about that. But most of us are motorists, and many motorists do have some kind of inherent prejudice, many of them do, not me of course, against cyclists. And you're bringing that to the table. Not many members of the jury, I suspect, will be cyclists. Nearly all of them will be motorists. And how are they going to apply that when it comes to judging the standard of a careful and competent cyclist? So if somebody's charged with causing serious injury by dangerous cycling, are they going to be able to bring their own experience to the table in the way that they're able to bring their open experience to a driving case. I think I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that pans out. This comes back to something we talked about last year, that the wanton and furious driving is a subjective test, whereas the criminal driving offences that you deal with are dealt with on an objective basis. And it will be similar with, we assume, with the cycling offences. So can you just run through for us what you look at in terms of the driving offences, and then we can potentially discuss how that might transfer across to any cycling offence. So you're all judged the standard of a careful and competent driver, okay? And when you're driving falls below that standard of a careful and competent driver, you commit an offence. So careful and competent, it's just that. It's not your Lewis Hamilton standard of driving, it's the careful and competent driver. But as I say, if you're driving falls below that standard, you commit an offence. The offence you commit depends on how far below the standard you have fallen. So if your driving falls below the standard of a competent, careful driver, you are guilty of careless driving. And that can be, you know, momentary inattention, elapsing concentration. You know, it's a relatively easy offence for the prosecution to prove, quite frankly, because we're all guilty of, of momentary lapses of concentration and, you know, momentary inattention when you're driving. Dangerous driving is a much more serious offence, and dangerous driving is made out when the standard of your driving falls far below that of a competent, careful driver, so not just below, but far below. And it would be obvious to a competent, careful driver that driving in that manner would be dangerous. So it is an objective test. But there is also a subjective element to it, of course, because as I say, when you're sitting there as a magistrate or as a jury, you're bringing your own experience to the table and thinking, you know, would I have done anything differently? Or, or you know, can that driving truly be said to be falling below the, the standard that is required? So it, it is an objective test, as you say. And that is a test that will be applied to the new cycling offence when stroke if it ever comes in. You know, you say objective, but these are pretty subjective 
views of what we think is sort of reasonable. And there are some things, as you said, the sort of extremes you can be pretty confident about. But unless you've got sort of people racing wrong way down one way streets when it's a pretty clear idea, often they are matters of fine judgment, which, as you rightly say, depend a lot on the jury's experience. And that's what they are told to bring to bear on the offence. And I do wonder, therefore, I mean, interestingly, you reflect on the fact that you don't think many of the juries you see have cyclists among their number or regular cyclists among their number. And so therefore, we are pretty prey to the other visions of what cycling is like. And and so when you have, you know, newspaper campaigns against evil cyclists or, you know, kind of very strong public commentary attacking you know, one cohort or another, it doesn't have to be cyclists, any, any particular group, you know, then you very easily end up that becomes your vision of what's right and wrong because you don't have anything else to judge it by. I mean, do you see that in the arena of the potential cycling offences? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's a legitimate concern. And I think Cycling UK have raised that as one of their concerns with regards to the new fence when, it, when it's brought in. And rightly so, because, you know, as I say, and I'll raise this again, you bring your own experiences to the table. And I suspect that, you know, Potentially, many jurors will not have the experienced cyclists, maybe occasional cyclists, but they will bring their own subjective judgments to the table, even though the offence is meant to be judged objectively. Well, if we go back to the examples I was giving of the various different cases over the last couple of years, the two I first referred to, uh, the Peter McCrombie one, that cyclist went through a red traffic light and then fled the scene. Both factors that even if you're a driver and you're not a cyclist, people are, are not going to t- look lightly on as a jury. When you look at the one involving Elizabeth Stone and Stuart McGinn, again, he was cycling on the pavement at speed, came around a corner and struck her and again left the scene. The third example, Cornelius de Bruyne, one where he hit Ian Gunn, and he's the guy who was found not guilty. He went through a traffic light earlier, but there was no traffic light involved at the time of the accident. He was cycling um, within the speed limit for the road and he stopped at the scene. He was there throughout and he was found not guilty. So if you look at the, the factors involved in the first two cases, I've said red traffic lights, cycling on pavements, people are going to have tend to have strong views for that the guy who was actually cycling on the road yes is he was cycling fast but it was within the limits he tried to avoid the collision and couldn't and then stayed at the scene he was found not guilty by a jury it's interesting as well to see how the prosecution will apply what amounts to dangerous cycling for example because in most of the road traffic prosecutions i deal with speed for example isn't dangerous per se so if you're doing 40 in a 30 or even 45 and a 30, potentially, there'll be argument to say, well, okay, you're driving may cause the death of the, of the person, but that you know, driving at that speed isn't dangerous. It's certainly careless, but that's not the offence that is likely to be brought in. It's, it's going to be caused to death by dangerous cycling. So, again, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what is considered to be dangerous cycling. Is it going to be speed alone? Is it going to be cycling on the pavement? Or is it going to have to be a combination of both, for example? Just to cite some of the examples you've just alluded to cycling on the pavement at speed is dangerous or is it just speed alone which, which amounts to dangerousness i don't know or, or is it the location as you say the very fact of being on the pavement precisely this also feeds into there have been the first fatality of a pedestrian by an e-scooter rider within the last six months and that involved Alinda davies who was struck on a pavement in southwall road east back on the 2nd of june she was hit by a 14 year old boy who was riding on the pavement. It was a privately owned scooter. It wasn't one from a trial. And as with the other incident, she died six days later from her injuries. 
this 14-year-old boy, he did remain at the scene. He contacted the emergency services himself. From what I could see, he's been interviewed under caution and it remained under investigation, but I don't know the outcome of that. But again, that all of the things we were just saying, riding on the pavement, he did stop at the scene and it's involving a 14-year-old as well. So it's a different age bracket to what we're used to seeing in terms of a driving offence, for example. The offence that they're potentially going to bring in is one of causing death by dangerous cycling. There are offences of dangerous cycling and careless cycling, which are available, both of which are punishable, my, my understanding is, by way of a financial penalty only. And clearly the potential offence that's been committed on that occasion would be met due to the gravity of, of, of these particular circumstances. I mean, it remains to be seen if they do introduce the offence of causing death by dangerous cycling, whether they subsequently bring in an offence of causing death by careless cycling or causing serious injury by careless cycling. That remains to be seen. I suspect that it's probably only a matter of time. I mean, I'm cautious about the e-scooter death of Linda Davis, but I'm very cautious about making any commentary on what's obviously still a very live case of what may or may not be charged or whatever, whatever. But leaving that aside, I keep wondering is the extent to which these new offences are required. And so on the one hand, there's clearly been a feeling that there needs to be something to recognise the most serious of offences because a sort of maximum penalty of two years for killing someone on a bike just doesn't compare to the concomitant offences for driving. But on the other hand, it's such a diminishingly small number of offences a year and it's such a diminishingly small number of cases that get brought, whether or not so much sort of air time or concern or consideration is warranted or whether it really is a problem that needs to be legislated and dealt with before it grows ever greater and to encompass all the other types of micromobility that are coming forward. What do you think about that, Ash? I don't necessarily think that just because something it's a vanishing or, or a very small number of such tragic incidents occur every year, I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure that in itself is a reason not to bring in a new law. My slight concern here is the way in which these prosecutions go. I'm I'm referring at the moment to motoring offences, but I can see that cycling offences go in the same way. And my concern is that it's now more about the consequences of your inattention rather than culpability. And I think this is the direction in which the courts and law have been going in for a number of years. So some years ago, they introduced the offence of causing serious injury by dangerous driving and we now have the offence of causing serious injury by careless driving so you know previously where a driver had been guilty of a, of a momentary lapse in concentration which led to serious injury while their culpability may be low the consequences may have been high that they would have been dealt with by say six points of their license you've now got this new offence of causing serious injury by careless driving where even though your culpability may remain low given that the consequences are high, you may be looking at a custodial sentence. So instead of six points, potentially six months. And that's my concern with with this this type of legislation in general, is that it seems to be pushed not necessarily, as I think it should be, by your culpability. That is really what should determine your punishment and how far below the standard of driving you have fallen. And any other aggravating features that need to be taken into account, of course. But it's more about the consequences, and I'm not necessarily sure that's the direction in which we should be going. In the amendment that Baroness uh, McIntosh was putting forward or Grant Shapps' proposals, do you see those suggestions going further down that path? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, because I say that's the direction in which we're going. It's far more about the outcome rather than the, the actual driving or cycling itself, which will determine your punishment. And I can understand why, you know, the victims of such offences may feel that, you know, six points simply isn't sufficient, or in the case of, you know, careless or dangerous cycling, a financial penalty just simply doesn't do justice or provide them with justice. But, you know, as I say, for me, it should really should be about your culpability, which determines the outcome and not necessarily the consequences. It's something the magistrates or the Crown Court can still take into account, of course, when they determine your sentence. But that shouldn't be the driving factor, I don't think. So one final question for both of you, really, is just in terms of if this is introduced, do we think it will have a preventative aspect to it? As in, if people know if I cycle through this red light and I hit somebody and this ultimately happens, I could go to prison for an extended period of time rather than two years. Or do we think it won't change behaviours at all? I'm not convinced it's going to change very much, I'm afraid. I think there really should be a much better education piece about SAFE and responsible cycling. I'm not sure that's going to be achieved by the introduction of, you know, fairly punitive offences or outcomes. I'm going to answer that two ways. <laughs> I think it might, and I say that with regard to things like um, people texting or using their phone. And I mean, obviously, that was a new technology that came into cars and obviously didn't happen at all before. And then there was a sort of rise of, of people using their phones. And I think that the significant ramping up and clarification of the penalties around phone use, I think, does have an effect and does make people more considerate of what they're doing and possibly also leads to a greater sort of proliferation of tech and methods of being able to use it safely. So, you know, now there's just so many ways in which phones connect to your cars that, you know, you shouldn't need to be looking at them or touching them or anything. So I wonder if it would have an effect. But I think where I would agree with Ash is the kind of, um, and I do think it's been made worse by the e-scooter Wild West. There's been a sort of free-for-all on the roads for a little while now. And I think that the behaviour of cyclists has become exponentially worse since e-scooters started to be trialled. And because e-scooters go everywhere and are often illegally ridden, or if they are hired or being taken on and off pavements or through and around lights, I increasingly think cyclists think, well, if they're doing it, I will as well. So I do think there needs to be a, a really strong educational component to road use in general. But I think that offences will have an effect and will certainly curtail, make people stop and think twice. Thank you both for our revisit of the criminal world and cycling. Again, we're 16 months down the line since we last spoke and nothing much is happening. But again, with this transport bill, if we visit it again in 2023, we might actually have some more wording or be further forward with an offence. Speak then. Thank you so much for coming to join us. It's been a real pleasure to have a chat with you and to learn a little bit more about your world and the criminal law as it affects all of us and particularly our vulnerable road users. Thank you so much. Thank you both. See you next time, Caroline. Bye-bye. Thanks, Ash. See you next time, Emily. Thanks for listening. Wheel Life is brought to you by international law firm DAC Beechcraft and Barrister's Chambers, 39 Essex Chambers. Discover more articles, podcasts and webinars over at dacbeechcraft.com and 39essex.com. <laughs>